You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Hello, and thank you for listening to the newest episode of the Tech Tank podcast. On this episode, we will be discussing the groundbreaking insights unveiled at the 2023 annual conference by the Family Online Safety Institute. You may also know them as FOSI. I was lucky to get an early read on this report, which is entitled Generative AI, Emerging Habits, Hopes, and Fears, which is a collaborative effort with the Cantor Consulting Firm. Now, I moderated a panel at the conference on this, just so you know. So I've been talking about this report for the last week. But why? Well, I think it's the first report that provides a global comparison into generative AI use among parents and teens in the United States, Germany, and Japan. And this is a comprehensive report that not only sheds light on raising awareness around a topic that's been pretty trendy among folks, but it also unpacks a critical layer to the ongoing social and ethical discourse surrounding this technology. In a world where models like ChatGPT and BARD are shaping the digital landscape, Microsoft's uh, generative AI product as well, understanding how generative AI is perceived and adopted becomes paramount in today's age, especially by young people and their parents. I know, I've got one at home. And as it's showing up everywhere in jobs, schools, and day-to-day tasks, there is a need for more prompts and discussions like the conclusions of this report to start a more evidence-based dialogue. So I'm really excited about today because joining me is a dear, dear friend that I've known for many, many years, Stephen Balcom, who's the founder and CEO of FOSI, and Kara Sunby, a new friend who is the senior director at Cantor and one of the co-authors of this new report. And together, we're going to dive into this generative AI, particularly how it's shaping dynamics between parents, teens, its applications, fears, and hopes that accompany this technological evolution. Thank you, Stephen and Kara, for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is great. Let's let's kind of jump in here. You know, Stephen, we didn't get a chance to talk to you on that panel, so I'm going to talk to you now. What prompted your interest in this topic and in this new research? I mean, every year you put out something new. I love it because it's always like provokes more conversation. But why generative AI teens and parents this year? Well, Nicole, just like everyone else, uh, a year ago when ChatGPT exploded into the world, um, I started reading stuff that was basically saying, on the one hand, this is going to, uh, I guess, solve uh, the climate crisis. It's going to create an unbelievable amount of abundance like we've never seen all the way through to this is the end of humanity as we know it. And I'm like, okay, so where's the truth in all of this? And so, um, you know, and we're, we, we produce research every year. At, we are very evidence-based in our work. Uh, we wanted to ask direct questions of both parents and teens. So we have a cross-generational look, but also across two or three countries. And we landed with the U.S., Germany, and Japan to get um, different, uh, different cultures involved. And so 
Um, this is really it. It's, it's, it's a first look um, and a, a, an attempt to see uh, how people feel about it, how they think about it, but particularly how they use it. Um, and my guess is uh, we're going to be returning to this over and over. So, Kara, start by telling us about the sample and some of the high-level findings of American Teen Use First and helping us, you know, understand generative AI use and how it's connected to parents' use and understanding as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we followed a two-phase approach. We first spoke to parents and teens in a more qualitative session, focused groups and online journals. And then we took our findings and our hypotheses from that research into a survey study. We learned from about 2,000 parents and children per market or parents and teens per market, giving us an overall sample of about 6,000. Um, those teens were 13 to 17 years old, and we thought it was important to talk to both parents and teens in the same household. So I think that was part of the research design was very intentional in making sure that we were talking to parents and then following up directly with, with those parents' teens. And some of the things that we learned about awareness were pretty interesting. I think we we learned that awareness is actually pretty even amongst parents and teens in all markets and that both parents and teens pretty familiar at the same level with generative AI. But where we start to see some differences is actually in how they're using it and some of the hopes, the fears that we'll get into as well. But awareness is pretty evenly matched across all of our markets. Uh, with Japan being a little bit of an outlier in terms of of their overall awareness, just because the country isn't as advanced with generative AI yet. And I think that's something we actually should expect, but it's something that we can actually dive back into as well. Stephen, does any of this surprise you? I mean, if so, why, why not? It, it sounds pretty much, you know, aligned with some of the geopolitical maybe uh, understandings of these countries, but just curious if any of this surprised you as those results came out. Yeah, there were some surprises. I mean, first of all, around two thirds of both parents and teens felt high levels of optimism about this. Considering mo much of the press coverage has been rather doom laden, I have to say. Um, the other thing that really struck me was that parents and teens seem to be equally aware and experienced with this new technology, whereas all of our research prior to that on tech, on tech tools, on social media use and so on, the teens were always way ahead of the parents. So this was a very interesting finding and one that, um, and, and, and it may be just this little window of time that we've chosen, and it could be that teens and young people then start to get ahead of their elders. But for now, uh, we seem to be on equal footing. And Kara, did that actually surprise you as well? Or what did you think about it when you start seeing that show up in the data? It did. It took us aback. It was one of the things that I think we weren't necessarily anticipating. Uh, so first we saw they're equally aware. Then we saw that teens and parents both tend to think that their parents are more knowledgeable about the platform. They're savvier about the platform, which, as Stephen says, it's very different than what we see with other technologies where teens are in the lead. Teens are the more tech savvy of the two, uh, two family cohorts. So it makes for an interesting inflection point today. We don't know at what point. I think it will be on the closer in horizon when teens do surpass their parents 
in terms of how familiar they are, how knowledgeable they are about Gen AI. But for now, it's it's putting us in a really interesting time for conversation, for learning where parents are in the driver's seat. Yeah, and I found it to be interesting, too, because you all remember on the panel, I mentioned sort of this conversation around, you know, narrowing the gaps, because if you go back to certain technologies, my kids don't know about the A-track or the cassette, right? And I do know more about social media uh, and probably more about generative AI. So sociologically, we probably are seeing some narrowed gaps just simply because of the time period that we're in and the technology probably becoming more available to both. I mean, Stephen, I, I would I would hope to think that all it, it's also a piece of Fossey's, uh awareness raising as well <laughs> that is making us begin to think that parents and teens have some agency over what they know. Well, you're very kind. I mean, yes. I mean, we've been working for a decade on a project called Good Digital Parenting, which is to educate parents about the technology tools that their kids are using, um, as well as parental controls that they can use to keep their kids safe online. Although literally two years ago, when we asked parents, uh, 61% of them admitted, 61, a majority of parents admitted that they asked their kids help in setting up the parental controls. So that's that's a kind of a, a, a wacky realization. Right, <laughs> right. The, the tools that are that are created for parents' use, they have to ask their kids help for. I mean, I think I think the reality is that a lot of parents are using ChatGPT either officially or unofficially at work. Uh, I think many adults and teens are concerned that these tools might eventually lead to them, you know, losing their jobs or at least, uh, you know, causing friction in the workplace. So uh, there's a much greater uh, incentive for parents and, and, and adults generally to dive into these tools to find out what the heck it's all about um, and, and for teens, they obviously have some incentives too. I, I even mentioned it from the stage about, uh, cheating on essay assignments. So, um, we're, we're, we're at equal levels at the moment. Yeah. And that, that's really a good point because, you know, President Biden's AI order that just came out really points out workforce, workplace implications, but that makes sense because in the case of generative AI, for those of you who know it, maybe those of you who don't, this is really a curated technology, meaning that it trains itself off of things that already are, exist in the digital footprint. And so we're, we've kind of grown up, right, with this curated digital experience in our digital lives. I think we get more worried probably when we start talking about predictive technologies. But you make a great point, Stephen, right? Probably we're all using it in some way or form, or it's creeped into the everyday things that we do on the internet. I know today I was like, how many times I got to tell this machine, I am smart. I am smart. Stop giving me indication <laughs> that I can use some kind Kind of uh, generative AI for editing, right? I got this. I don't need a design to generate. You know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. seeing it more and more help and uh, assist me. But I could assume, you know, parents, like you said, have had more exposure. That's here in the U.S., though, guys. Right? Like, what about in other countries? I'm really curious. Like, are those findings as optimistic in places like Germany and Japan? So maybe Kara talk a little bit more about that, and then Stephen. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that was interesting about looking at the Japanese market is that there's not yet a Japanese language Gen AI platform. So awareness and usage is a little bit lower in that market until they come up with and, and release a Japanese language platform, one that accounts for all the intricacies of that language, of the culture, 
it means that it's a little bit harder to use for people there. But at the same time, they are overwhelmingly optimistic. This is the most optimistic country on the topic of generative AI. There are fears, there are concerns, but in terms of optimism of what it might be able to do for people to enhance their lives, to enhance society and advance things like medicine, the Japanese market came through as the most optimistic in spite of the lowest awareness or usage, usage today. Wow, that's interesting. Stephen, what do you think about that? That's an interesting um, uh, finding, actually. It really is. Um, you know, in my travels to Japan, um, I do see a cultural difference in the sense of their willingness to adopt technology of any kind, uh, particularly robotics. I mean, that's a country that has really, really embraced the idea of robots being a part of both their home life, as well as their work life, as well as when you're in hotels and restaurants and so on. So I guess I guess that's one that's part of it. Um, my guess also is that if we go back in two or three years time, I would not be surprised if the optimism scale starts to dip a little bit um, as more and more becomes, you know, the implications of, of this technology starts to uh, starts to kind of break home. And and again, back to some of the top line issues, which includes not just job loss, but misinformation. Um, and, and by the way, of course, the next year is a big year for elections all across the globe. You know, and if we start to see that democracy is starting to be undermined by these tech tools, maybe the optimism levels will really take a hit. Well, that's why I found the comparison with places like Japan and Germany really interesting, right? Because on the one hand, like you said, you know, Japan has always been an early adopter of technology. I can go back to like mobile technology, but they're also very guarded, right? When it comes to how citizens interact and the report brings up like another point, right? It's also not necessary technology that is going to completely translate it to their experiences. Um, myself and a former fellow that we had from Stanford, Regina Ta, we wrote a piece on that, you know, the the generative AI only being trained on, you know, 700 to 1,000 languages. Yeah, that, ha that has it. But what about in Germany, right? Because Germany is interesting, you know, in your travels there, they are a country, uh, you know, where the parliamentarian or the Bundestag is really also want some governmental influence into how technology plays out in the lives of their citizens. Kara, what did you see there that was also a surprising finding with regards to the comparison between U.S. and Japan's use? With Germany, I think we saw sort of a more tempered take on what the technology might provide. There's a willingness to learn about it. And there are parents who are actually already entering into seminars and schools to try and better understand what it might do for, for, for them and their families. What are some of the fears? What are some of the ways that they should be using it? Um, I think that one of the call outs for Germany as well is that, you know, they might have more interest or trust in using some, something like a robot vacuum they, they do have more trepidation about using a technology like this, which is, you know, associated with things like misinformation. It is associated with things like loss of critical thinking. And we saw that certainly coming through both some of the quali qualitative conversations we had with, with parents in Germany, as well as some of the data that came through about things that they're scared about and the ways in which they, they plan to use it. Definitely more tempered than in other markets.
And that's interesting because I think in the United States, we have, you know, again, this optimistic, permissive stance. But to Stephen's point, I think as more fear becomes associated with the tool, particularly as we go into the elections, we might see that change. I do agree with you on that. But one of the things I want to talk about is this whole idea of like teens agency. And you spend a lot of time on teens and not an some, you know, maybe equal time on younger kids, you know, that we know are eventually going to grow into teens. Was there a reason for that, Kara and Steve? Or, you know, were there things that you wanted to extrapolate from the teen population to help us sort of prepare for the early childhood population when it came to the tool? Well, I'll, I'll just start in the sense that because uh, we made that decision, it gets much more complicated legally to talk to Right. So that's what it was. (laughs) I get it now. That's a simple answer. I'll let Kara give a complicated answer. I think research-wise, it would have been more complicated to interview children. Um, I think given the newness of the topic and some of the complexity of the topic, teens felt like the right group when we were looking at children in the household to speak to. Um, I think as well, a lot of the learnings that we did glean from talking to teens do apply to children as well and to parenting more broadly. So we do a lot of generational research at Kantar. And I think one of the things that we look for are these starting points or transformation points for different cohorts of of people, of teens, of consumers. And we look to things like massive tech transformations or innovations and how they might shape an entire generation. We look at millennials and we think that they're shaped largely by their engagement with the iPhone. We we call them the iPhone generation. We talk about Gen Z as really being shaped by social media. They are the social media generation. And those were many of the, the teens that we talked to do fall in the Gen Z bracket. But we look to children, we actually can learn a lot about this research and what we learned from teens and and the general experience of using generative AI to to start to think about what does this transformation look like as we look uh, at children who will be coming of age with the backdrop of generative AI in their lives. They won't have a learning curve about it. It will be embedded in their lives. And we can very well point to, to generative AI as being that transformation that transformative technology for them, just like the iPhone was for millennials, just like social media has been for Gen Z, Gen AI could be that technology and will be that technology for for the, this next generation of children. Well, that's interesting too, because um, there's a part of me, and I didn't think about this when we were actually having our first conversation, that says when you just talked about the smartphone, you know, the smartphone was pretty uh, creative and a valuable asset to the ecosystem of communications because it allowed people to not only use voice, but to really bolster the potential of the internet to do Mm -hmm. beyond transactional things, right? And now we see a technology that is added on through artificial intelligence, right? This is not like, you know, your mom's social media, right? This is a new technology that is leveraging Gen AI to produce these thoughts, these, these, these bits of thoughts, of text, of language, of voice, of image. And to your point, you know, part of what I read in the report, which I thought was interesting, we had other problems with prior technologies because we sort of let the hen out the gate without parents knowing what the hen was doing. Mm. And here your report is suggesting 
We're going to have a technology that, you know, for whatever the uh, challenges are from, you know, politicians and community advocates, it will be a technology that's more um, uniformly dispersed. And I'm curious, will it be dispersed in a way? And Steve, this kind of goes back to the test thing where the analytical skills and the critical inquiry skills that do come out of generative AI, will that be something that will be amassed to parents or to amass to teens who, just like young people become teens, teens eventually become parents. I keep telling my daughter that you're going to be like me at some mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. your life. Is that, is it, you know, you see what I'm talking about in terms of those analytical skills or like there's certain things that are impressing upon uh, the reason why parents and teens are more closely aligned because our society is in that way as well, you know? Well, I think that um, what I, and Kara, jump in if you think this is wrong, but I, I mentioned misinformation, job loss, superintelligence as overarching concerns. But I, what I gleaned from the report was parents had a particular current concern about loss of critical thinking, not for themselves, but for their kids. Yes. Um, and whereas teens reported they were far more worried about cyberbullying and the use of AI. And we're already seeing this, uh, of course, horrendous examples of, uh, you know, girls, uh, you know, heads being put onto naked bodies and all that kind of stuff. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a real concern from parents that uh, their kids are not going to be able to think for themselves. Um, But then I guess parents have always kind of felt that way. Um, You know, my my parents were worried about, you know, watch too much television. And then, you know, there was a concern about comic books, the generation before that and uh, video games subsequently. I mean, so there's always there's always been that fear of, of new technology. This feels a little different in the sense of you use the word pervasive, uh, Nicole. And, it, um, you know, I, I compared it to the World Wide Web in 1995 and then <laughs> Web 2.0 in 2005. I'm starting to think that maybe this is a little bit more like the onset of electricity where that just, you have a saw and now you have an electric saw. You have a brush and now you have an electric toothbrush. You know, you just add AI to everything. And that's quite a qualitative difference. Um, And I think you you were mentioning earlier uh, about how maybe we didn't get hold of, uh, you know, the web or social media. Um, and I don't know if you were going down the legislation route, but there does feel to me, at least, and I've been in this space for goodness me, nearly 30 years, that there really does feel to me like governments and think tanks like your own uh, and my own organization that we're really trying to get it right this time or as right as we possibly can, as quickly as we can, rather than just allowing it all to wash through and then try to retrofit laws or technology tools to mitigate the worst of the harms. That's right. Well, that's why I like your analogy of electricity, because I was just like in my mind, ever since I read your report, I've been trying to put my hands around why this is different, right? And I love the way you're talking about it. And for those of you, please go out and get this report. I'm going to tell, ask Stephen in a moment how to get this report, where you can actually access it. My point is like, 
you mentioned as electricity, I almost think of it as like a navigation tool, right? <laughs> Where it becomes just embedded in the things that we do. Like no one carries a road atlas in their car anymore. We are dependent on this navigational tool because it's able to do some thinking for us. And they just get better and better, as you said, with AI. It's sort of like it just gets, it was like the original, you know, Intel chip. It just got better and better over time. You know, that that gives me some conversation, though, because to your point, policymakers are worrying about this. I think just today uh, there was a bill introduced in Congress that is targeting generative AI in particular. And it's probably going to be the case, you know, for months and years to come. What what were some of the policy uh, considerations that came out of the report, Kara, that are worth sort of mentioning? Because this audience that we have, they also want to know, like, what policymakers are going to do with this as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think from a policymaking perspective, we hope that this research can start to guide some conversations about best practices. Um, We were a little bit more focused on what parents can do and what industry could do. And I know Stephen can talk to some of the policy pieces here as well. Um, A lot of it is about trying to provide transparency. That was the number one thing that parents said that they wanted to learn more about. They want to learn where data is sourced. They want to learn how transparent the data uh, is, how it's being used, how much they can trust the output from generative AI as well. So leaning into transparency is pretty key from a policy perspective, from, from a company perspective. It's certainly something that parents are looking for in terms of better understanding the technology, but also talking to their teens about the technology, and it would alleviate a lot of their fears or concerns to know that there's more veracity of data or uh, or that the data is more transparent. Yeah, so that, that sort of lends itself to why we need a national data privacy standard, uh, but I won't talk too much about that. <laughs> but um, Stephen, what about the policy recommendations? And in particular, I think the call to industry, like you said earlier, to get it right. Uh, What do you think that prioritizes for them in the industry sector as well when it comes to navigating through this potential alignment? Well, obviously, they have got to take responsibility for what they're creating. And part of that is, and what almost everyone said, we need more transparency about um, where on earth all of this is coming from. How can I trust it? Is, Is it verifiable? And so on. Um, and, and actually, to be honest, we took a, a view of going after policy with a little p, so industry policies and parental policies, for that matter, the, parent, you know, the policies that parents create or the rules that, you, that we create in our homes. Um, policy with a big P, we deferred for the time being simply because, A, um, there are an awful lot of other organizations, your own Center for Democracy and Technology and a bunch who are doing extraordinary work. Um, in terms of uh, creating public policy ideas, which of course came out of the executive order. In the UK, we had the AI Safety Summit and and so on. So we're just kind of stepping back and and reviewing and seeing where that's going to land. But in the meantime, um, talk directly to parents and companies. Now, also interesting, well, maybe not that surprising, but U.S. parents uh, put themselves as the most responsible for keeping their kids safe, uh, even in regards to Gen AI, whereas other countries, uh, Germany and Japan, much less so. And they're far more willing 
to allow their governments to uh, to step in and to uh, and to protect. So we have some interesting cultural differences there too. Well, and that's what I'm saying. I, I like that you brought that in to tell you the truth. I want you both to sort of speak to that because, you know, FOSI has actually had an interest globally, right, in uh, whether it's children privacy or safe um, practices and protocols, getting industry, you know, not necessarily to behave better, but to be culturally astute in understanding these different values and norms that come to the table when it comes to young people and uh, parental guidance and institutions or government. Um, you know. Let's go there just for a moment, because I don't want us to leave this, Stephen, without really going into how this is going to effectuate the policy or conversations that are happening overseas. Because I know you are there when there's something going on. I see you. See you on Facebook, but I see you at these things. (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting because in the mid to late 90s, the U.S. was exporting uh, both ideas and regulations. COPPA was the Child Online Privacy Protection Act became a sort of global de facto standard, um, no matter where you went. Um, But we sort of stopped innovating in the space of internet regulation. Uh, We sort of, I don't know why, we just sort of let, I guess 9-11 was such a psychic shock to the country that everything became cybersecurity and we sort of locked things down. Um, And we allowed the emergence of the social media companies to come and just with Section 230, the ability to just, uh, you know, as it were, get a pass on whatever content was on their site, providing it wasn't child sexual abuse material, um, we we just sort of let them do whatever. Um, I, I think that there is a, a seismic shift, and I think what's happening is Europe uh, and and the UK, because we have to, they're not the same anymore. Um, are, are leading in the regulatory space. So we have the Digital Services Act coming out of Brussels. We have the Online Safety Act, um, which just passed. And uh, in fact, the UK minister spoke at our conference only earlier this week about. Uh, and, and Australia, the eSafety Commission, um, has been doing some fascinating work on safety by design and taking some of the companies to task for uh, their lack of compliance. And, and we just barely managed to pass budgets here. Uh, and even those are only for two or three months. So uh, we, we, we're a, kind of a dysfunctional mess when it comes to the regulatory regimes. Now, at the state level, that's another matter. And we're seeing lots of things emerge, um, some which we think are quite helpful, um, like in California in the Age Appropriate Design Code, which, of course, they borrowed from the UK. But outright bans of media, social media apps like in Montana or the curfews in Utah, I, we're very concerned about what's going on in the individual states. So I'm afraid to say we're all over the map here in the U.S. <laughs> I tell people that I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of a room and there are a lot of post-it notes around me. And yeah. I can't, like, I have dreams that I can't get myself out of those post-it notes. Yeah, Yeah, that's my dream at night. But um, Mm -hmm. I agree with you, right? It's so disparate. And we're not able to come closer to um, any policy proposals, I think, that stitch the ecosystem together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and Kara, that that brings me to you. You know, as we start wrapping up this conversation, there's this thing inside of me that says about the report that at least it's a genuine voice of the people who are impacted by the technology. Um, Talk to me a little bit about like 
even in the crafting of these policy proposals that Stephen is talking about, why it's so important to survey the actual subjects of these technologies and users of these technologies just to make better evidence-based policy-making decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're moving to a place where more stakeholders' voices are needed. It's important to know what are some of the real challenges or expectations from parents and teens about using this technology because it is going to set, as we've talked about, the practices, the policies for what is a very transformational technology in the future. People are excited about it. They also have fears about it. And I think getting their voices into the mix will will only shape for stronger policies in the future. Uh, Stephen, you want to add to that in terms of, you know, why you find it in your mission very important to just keep surveying these voices so that we can just do a better job going forward, you know, not just in our policy proposals, but in our practices and our good stewardship, you know, of our kids' safety online. You know, um, we believe in enlightened public policy. And what we mean by that is enlightened by evidence of what is actually going on in real people's lives, uh, not based on some Daily Mail headline. Uh, we, we try not to use uh, fear-based language or too much exaggeration in making our points, um, but just try and stay steady in, in this response to just explosions of technological innovation, which, by the way, I'm still excited about. I am thrilled, you know, that we're living through this remarkable age. Um, and my hope is that uh, we will do a much better job than we have done uh, in the earlier phases of the web uh, in getting our heads around um, you know, funneling out the, the worst of this um, while focusing on the rewards. Um, but it's going to take it's going to take us all. It's going to take governments. It's going to take industry. It's going to take parents, teachers. And by the way, the kids themselves. That's right. And that's why we also emphasize young people's voices at, like we had at our conference. Let's hear directly from them and maybe let's be guided by them at times uh, as to what we should do next. I totally agree with that. My 17-year-old always tells me that the people making good policy in D.C. don't understand people like her. Um, and she really, you know, she came on a social media podcast that we did, and she really raised the bar about having more people who have that experience at the table in ways that they can express themselves. But also, again, like your report does, having the dialogue start because we're hearing from communities and countries on how they're, you know, mitigating some of the risk and then finding alignment around new technologies. You know, I I, I shared, you know, in the panel, and you, and you know me, there are so much more we could talk about in your report, I'm sure, you know, whether it's, you know, how bias is impacted, uh, the use by parents and teens, how much they even know about it, that the technology's cadence and what's involved with the technology. Clearly, there were things that you said in that report that just stood near and dear to my heart around young people using generative eye to also stay safe in certain scenarios because that technology gives them a way to express themselves outside of 
of the fear and cautiousness of parents who may, you know, not not want them to come out the closet or stay in the closet, whatever the case may be. It, it Those things speak to me because mm-hmm. uh, mental health is a big, big concern. You know, I want to just end here. Like you also bring that up in this report for people listening, that part of some of this uh, movement that we're seeing is that young people need these tools to a certain extent is just maintain some levels of mental health. Um, Carrie, you want to talk about that? And Steve, then just take us out. Yeah, absolutely. So the mental health, I think this is one of the most interesting findings from this study and, you know, also points to why generative AI is so different from AI or from other technologies is that as we've been looking at research and researching perceptions and possibilities of gen AI, Versus AI, one thing that we've started to realize is that AI is perceived as being pretty cold and pretty analytical. Gen AI seems to have more potential to engage people emotionally. There's an openness, and we've seen this in this research, to using it for more emotional or or even therapeutic purposes. It can be used to humanize interactions. It can be used to move beyond sort of a cold analytical technology to something that allows people to communicate in layman terms, to communicate with compassion. We see doctors using it for these purposes. And then on the personal level or the, 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 the individual user level, we see people with great openness to using it to talk about mental health and emotional health. Instead of talking to a real person, these platforms are opening a possibility for countries like Japan, where it might be taboo to talk about mental health issues, to talk to a platform and receive a similar level of counseling or therapy uh, that they might not be open to or able to access otherwise. Yeah. And I I feel both hopeful and a little fearful of this part of it. <laughs> I've got to say, um, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Her, Um, But basically, the protagonist, the main guy, falls in love with his operating system. uh, And, you know, that's all he needs. All he needs to do is to talk uh, to this AI. Um, I I mean, it is a godsend. I've been testing BARD for teens, by the way, that just got launched today. Google gave me some clearance to uh, try and test it out. And, you know, I asked it some difficult questions, uh, pretending to be a 17-year-old, asking it about... You know, how do I tell my parents I'm gay or I'm considering leaving the church, but I don't want, you know, and, and, and it was giving me very empathetic responses. And quite frankly, if I was a 15, 16, 17 year old needing some help and advice and didn't want to turn to anyone around me because I didn't trust them, that would be an amazing tool to have. On the other side, of course, um, there's the fear that we will st- start to lose the ability to talk to each other about difficult topics and subjects and just be dependent on our AI tools. So I guess I used to call myself a techno optimist. I'm more of a techno pragmatist now. And I just, I want to find the best pragmatic uses for these new technologies that we can have without getting all utopian about them. No, that makes sense. And that's a great way to look at it. I I consider myself to be a tech pragmatist um, when we start to think about ways in which we keep this Internet of ours safe um, from, you know, these 
tools that have the potential to become exclusionary or uh, exercise power over us. Listen to the two of you. I've enjoyed this conversation. In fact, I've enjoyed just talking to you all week. Um, so, but I'm going to let you go because I know that Stephen just came off a big conference and he must be exhausted. It was a great conference. And Kara, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for uh, sharing the support with us here at Brookings and with our audience as well. So thank you both. Well, thank you, Nicole. What a great steward you are of these conversations. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Nicole. You are listening to the Tech Tank Podcast, where we take large bits and turn them into palatable bites. Please be sure to like the episode after listening so others can find us. And subscribe to the Tech Tank newsletter for our content that covers these and other issues. Hey, Stephen, where can people find your report? Go to fozy.org. That's F O. SI.org, and there's a link right on the homepage. Perfect. Go get that report. Go see what we were chatting about, and we hope to have you hear us again on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.